Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 119. We are continuing our study today. We will be in verses 17 through 24 as we look at these eight verses in Psalm 119. You'll notice in your bulletin, I added an extra insert this week. Um, This is just something you can kind of tuck in uh, to your Bible to kind of help you understand as you read through Psalm 119. As as I've mentioned a couple times, there are eight words um, in Psalm 119 that the psalmist uses to describe God's word over all. These are the eight words as well as how the NIV and the ESV translate those words and some uh, explanation of what those words mean. So as you come across them in your personal study, um, you can be aware of that. And hopefully that will be an aid in your own personal meditation on these words that God has given to us. As I mentioned, our scripture reading today begins in verse 17 of our psalm. And so let us listen to the word of God. Do good to your servant and I will live. I will obey your word. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. I am a stranger on earth. Do not hide your commands from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. You rebuke the arrogant who are cursed and who stray from your commands. Remove from me scorn and contempt for I keep your statutes. The rulers sit together and slander me. Your servant will meditate on your decrees. Your statutes are my delight. They are my counselors. Let us pray. To the wonderful and magnificent God who does wonderful things. These words that we are studying today are truly wonderful words of life. Change our hearts and lives through what we hear and what we study. Develop in our hearts a longing to learn and to live your good word. In Jesus' name, amen. So how many of you are familiar with Beethoven's Fifth Symphony? Yep, some of you are even singing the theme. Bum, 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 bum. I I guess in a different question, how many of you are even familiar with Beethoven? Okay, good. A A couple more of you. There is a theme that runs through at least the first uh, movement of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. And it is, bum, 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 bum. If you listen to at least the first minute of it, there's an explicit repetition of that theme over and over again as as Beethoven kind of bounces it up and down the scale, the the notes that the, uh, the, the symphony is written in. And even as the second minute begins, and it seems like a second theme comes in, if you you listen closely, it's actually kind of the same theme, just rewritten in a different way. Beethoven was famous for this. Actually, many of the classical composers were famous for this. They, They took a certain theme and they repeated it over and over again. Now, notice that they didn't just merely repeat the theme over and over again. If you just had that same theme, bum, 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 repeated for 30 minutes, well, you'd probably turn the recording off. But notice that as Beethoven or other composers repeat the theme of their symphony, it's not only repeated, but it is changed or tweaked each time it is repeated. The theme may move up or down the scale, the key in which 
it is composed. <clears throat> the timing may be adjusted so that one note is held a little bit longer than it was the first time the repetition came through. There may be a new note introduced behind the theme as a support or an enhancement. As the composer, in this case Beethoven, repeats the theme, it begins to grow in beauty. It grows in depth. It grows in weight. The scriptures are the same. The most basic understanding of the Bible, it is a story of God's creation, man's sin, God's salvation, and the glorious future that await the people of God. This theme is established in the first three chapters of Genesis and weaves its way throughout the, the Bible to the end of the book of Revelation. In the, as the theme unfolds, it grows in its beauty. It grows in its complexity as God calls people and kings to do his work and they fail and seemingly put God's plan in danger. And yet God over and over again works for salvation and for rescue until Jesus comes and we see the glory of the new heavens and the new earth. Our study of Psalm 119 will be very similar. It is a repetitive psalm. And yet the psalmist doesn't merely repeat for the sake of repetition. Repetition is important. We learn things through repetition. But as the psalmist repeats his themes, he moves them and tweaks them and changes them just a little bit so that we begin to see a greater depth and a greater beauty behind these themes that the psalmist is giving us. Today's passage is no exception. You're going to see that the psalmist shows us once again his dependence upon God for learning and living God's word. We'll see that the psalmist shows this dependence through prayer. And yet as we look at today's passage, we will also see that God's word offers direction, hope, and comfort in the face of affliction. Because the shift that we see in the theme today is that this dependence upon God to learn and to live his word, the dependence that is shown in prayer comes in the midst of affliction. First thing we want to see in the first four verses, it's the psalmist desires to see God's wonders. Now, the psalmist opens up with this declaration, this call to God, this cry to God in verse 17 to do good to your servant and I will live. Life within the scriptures is more than just some biological process that we can measure with medical equipment. To be alive, to live in the Bible is to have an abundant well-being in our mind, in our body, and in our spirit. It's the idea encapsulated in the saying, it's not so much the years in your life as it is the life in your years. The psalmist is saying that the source of his meaning, the source of his hope, the source of his comfort in this life is from God and from God alone. Notice that he says not only will he live, but he will be obedient. So the source of his life is revealed to him in the words that God has revealed to him in the scripture. You and I pursue the quote unquote good life in so many wrong areas and in so many wrong ways. You and I may seek out meaning in money. You may seek out hope in expensive homes. 
You and I may seek comfort in relationships. Satan and the world try to sell you and I something. Sell you meaning and peace in the things of this world, which what they are good, they are created by God, but they are not the ultimate good. Only a restored and reconciled relationship with God can provide the ultimate life, the ultimate meaning, the ultimate hope in this life. So the psalmist cries out to God, do good to your servant so that I will live. And then he shows us two reasons why he is crying out to God, or he shows us why and what he is crying out for in verses 18 and 19. Why is he crying out to God? Verse 19 says, I am a stranger on earth. Do not hide your commands from me. We'll see some further implications of this as we get to the second half of today's passage. But the theme in this particular verse is that the psalmist is a stranger, an alien, a sojourner on earth. This is another one of those themes that shows up repeatedly throughout the scriptures. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob were strangers in the promised land. Israel were sojourners and strangers in the land of Egypt and in the wilderness And even in the promised land, they were described as strangers and sojourners because the promised land looked forward, pointed forward to a greater and to a better promised land. We read in first Peter earlier today to the about the reality that you and I Christians are strangers and aliens in this world. We have the we you and I have the privilege to have been born in or to live in the country in America And yes, you and I must strive to be good citizens that pursue the good and the prosperity of the country, of the kingdom in which we live. But for the child of God, your true citizenship is in heaven. While we await the renewal of this world and the new heavens and the new earth in Christ, you and I are citizens of that garden city that is described in Revelation 21 and 22. That is our true home country. That is where our true allegiance lies. And your pursuit of being good citizens in that country, in this country, excuse me, your pursuit of being good citizens in this country should be rooted in the growth and in the glory of that country, of that city, of that kingdom of God. So that is why he wants God to do good to him and give him life. But what does he want revealed that will lead him to the good life? In verse 18, he says, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. What will give him life? What will be the good that God can reveal to him? What's the opening his eyes so that he can see the wonderful things that God has revealed, the wondrous things that God has done. In the Psalms, if you read through the book of Psalms and you look for key words and you look for similar themes that show up within the book of Psalm, wondrous things, wonderful things that God has done is something that show up within the Psalms. As the psalmist describe God's acts of salvation and rescue. These acts of salvation are praised as wondrous things because they are rooted in God's faithfulness, in his covenant love for his people. I want to speak of repetitive psalms. Take some time this week to look at Psalm 136. 
The psalmist in Psalm 136 goes through God's creation, goes through God's rescue of his people from slavery in Egypt and his sustaining of them in the wilderness as he leads them to the promised land. And every other line in that psalm is the repetition of for his steadfast love endures forever. God's covenant faithful love endures forever. And the psalmist repeats that over and over again as he thinks of the work of God in rescuing Israel from slavery in Egypt. How much more wondrous works do you and I have to look into? Because we have not been freed from slavery in Egypt, but we have been freed from slavery to sin. We discussed today the glory in Sunday school today. We discussed the glory of God's election, God's predestining grace. As God looks at sinners who left to their own devices would spend eternity hating and rebelling against God. And yet God looked at people out of love and he said, I will save some. They don't deserve it. In fact, what they deserve is hell and damnation, but but I will save them and give them life. Not only will I choose them for salvation, but I will punish their sin in the second person of the Trinity, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, so that I can remain just as God. I don't violate my justice in forgiving sin, but I can remain just and the justifier, as Paul says in Romans 3, of those who love God. We do well when we study the scriptures to ask God in our prayer, Lord, I am dependent upon you for the study, for the learning of scripture. We do well to ask God in that prayer, Lord, show me the glories of salvation. Show me the good news that I am saved by God. Show me the good news of what Jesus has done for me, regardless of the scripture which I'm reading whether it's an Old Testament psalm or a New Testament historical book. When you ask God to open your eyes to the glories of his word, part of that prayer should be for God to reveal the wondrous work of the gospel in your life today, right now. In return for his life, in return for the good that God shows to the psalmist, and in return for the revelation of the wondrous things that God has done, the psalmist says that he will obey God's word. And this obedience, we are told in verse 20, is rooted in this life-shattering longing for God's word. Verse 20 says, my soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. That word translated consumed there means to be absolutely crushed by desire. As many of you know, I was not living a godly life. I was well outside of God's will uh, for anybody's life um, up until I was about 22. And the reason that happened, the thing that God used to move me toward, not a thing, the person that God used to move me toward that was a life-crushing desire for a young lady. 
I went to church one day. Actually, I didn't really go to church. Mom and dad drug me to church. I was not in a physical shape to go to church, but they got me up and drug me there anyway. And I saw a girl. And I'm like, I want to see her again. And I stopped going to bars and I started going to church just so I could meet this girl. God used that to actually convert me. Thanks be to God. So not only did I find a wife, but I found salvation as well. But that's the idea. The psalmist is so desirous of the word of God that it crushes him and he cannot do anything but change his life to follow God's laws. And as he looks into God's wondrous acts of salvation, that is what causes this life crushing longing within him. The cross has already crushed you and I in putting our sinful self to death and reviving us, resurrecting us as new men and women that are in love with God and in his word. And as we consider that truth, that reality of the salvation that is purchased for us and the cost of that salvation for us, it should crush us in a good way that leads us to live a life of holiness and obedience. 1 Peter 1.12 tells us that angels long to look into the deep mysteries of salvation and they are not going to benefit from that work of Jesus. How much more should you and I, who have benefited tremendously from the work of salvation, that wondrous work of God, how much more should we long to study and to learn and to grow in holiness and love for God? And so the, the psalmist wants to have the wondrous works of God revealed for him so that he can have life as a stranger in this world. Now, being a stranger in this world works its out in affliction and, hostil- and hostility. And so in the last four verses of our passage today, we see how the psalmist finds hope in hostile times. He opens up this passage by saying, remove from me scorn and contempt. For I remove from me scorn and contempt, for I keep your statutes. Before we look deeply into this, we need to consider something important. I think one of the failings of the American church in the last half a century or so is that we have convinced a large number of people, both here in America and around the world, that Man, if you accept Jesus, life is easy and he fixes all your problems. You do not have another trouble in life as soon as you come to saving faith in Christ. Brothers and sisters, that's a lie. Life is hard. Jesus said, I suffered. You're going to suffer. Suffer. You might go to supper too, but you'll suffer somewhere in there. The world hated me. The world will hate you. The followers of Christ. Suffering looks different for everybody according to God's sovereignty, according to God's providence in your life, wherever he has placed you. But the message of Scripture is those who pursue obedience to God's law will suffer as they pursue it in Christ. Our world doesn't like holy people. Our world doesn't like righteous people. And and yes, we still stumble. We still fall. We definitely are not perfect. We will not be perfect. You and I will not be perfect until Christ returns or until we meet him through death. But the truth is, when you seek to live your life 
shaped by a love, a longing, a desire for the law of God, the world will hate you. And in the midst of that hatred, the psalmist finds hope in the wonderful works of God. First and foremost, the Christian life is a contested life. The enemy and the world do not want you progressing in sanctification. The enemy and the world do not want you internalizing and learning the word of God. Because of this, persecution and suffering and affliction comes in the form, as we see in today's passage, of verbal hostility. As we see in other parts of the scripture, it comes in the form of outright physical persecution. The arrogant were heaping scorn. They were heaping content, contempt upon the psalmist. And he cries out to God because God has promised to protect his people from scorn and contempt. And he cries out to God, remove from me scorn and contempt because I keep your statutes. And why do I keep your statutes? Because one of the wondrous things you have done is you have reached down and you have saved me. You have made me your child. One of the the things I love about the Psalms is the Psalms of Lament, which our passage today echoes many of the Psalms of Lament. What are most what are most of us? What are what are you and I tempted to do when affliction comes, when contempt and scorn comes? We either just kind of do, oh, woe is me. Or we say it is what it is. We get angry with God. We blame God for God. You've done this to me. You saved me and you made my life horrible. It's not how the psalmists deal with it. The psalmists do like the psalmist does here. God, you've promised to remove me from these situations. And yet here I am right in the middle of it. Remember me. Rescue me. You've done wondrous works for me in the past. Do wondrous works for me again. I will continue to be obedient. It's verse 24, because your statutes are my delight. And regardless of how bad it gets, whether it's just my neighbor or whether it's powerful people in this world that sit together and slander me, I will be faithful to you. But but you've promised that because I'm your child and because I seek to be faithful to you, that you will rescue me. Lord, where are you? It's the message of the Psalms of Lament. It's the message of our passage today. God, you've done wondrous things. And yet here I am in the midst of hardship, in the midst of affliction, in the midst of hostility. Where are you? Remember me. That has to be our prayer when hostility, when affliction comes upon us. We are called to live a life of obedience. We are called to live a life of hope. We are called to live a life of worship, even when life is hard. Now, yes, you and I do need to search our hearts to make sure that the hardships that we are living are not, you know, our fault. They're not a discipline that God brings upon us. But if you search your heart and you find that, Lord, I am repentant. Yes, I am a sinner, but I am repentant. And life is still hard. Hostility is still here. Remember me and do good to me, for I am your child. That is the prayer that we pray. A prayer rooted in the promises of God. And these prayers rooted in the promises of God show up all throughout Scripture. The end of Romans 8, Paul asks this question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Think about that, Paul's life. As he, as he looked at his life, he's like, I could die at any moment because of the message I proclaim. People look at me as just somebody to be stomped on, to be beaten because of the holiness that I pursue. He could get down. And yet he says, no. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And Paul says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so why do we cry out to God and lament in the midst of hostility, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of affliction? It's because nothing can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Brothers and sisters, there's there's more to learning the scriptures than just gaining knowledge, than just being obedient in our actions. It's being obedient in our prayers as well. How are your prayers shaped when you suffer affliction, when you suffer persecution? They should be shaped by the word, by the promises, by the wondrous things that God has done for you. Because it is only in those wondrous things that God has done for you that we can find meaning and hope and comfort in the face of suffering. God promises healing for sickness and yet you've been dealing with a chronic illness or a chronic mental affliction. Go to God and say, God, you promise healing. I love you. I will worship you. I will obey you. But you promise healing. Where are you? Do you suffer an acute loss, a car wreck, a sudden diagnosis? Go to God and say, Lord, you promise to hold me in love and prosperity as your child. I will worship you. I will obey you. I will trust you in all things. Do good to me and give me life. God's word offers us the meaning, the hope, the comfort that we desperately need and search for in the face of affliction. Do we desire, are we crushed by a longing for God's goodness enough to allow the scriptures to shape our prayers in those hard times? Let us pray. Our God and Father above, you call us to obedience, you call us to holiness, and that includes our prayers in the midst of affliction. May we be shaped by these wonderful words that you have given to us today. May we rest in your promise And may we learn to lament well when we suffer affliction and hostility in this world. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you go this week into our world, as you go to work, as you go home, as you go to your enjoyments, your hobbies, your fun, take this blessing upon you. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ 
the love of God the Father, and the communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, both now and forevermore. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.